Now's a good time to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions. There's a lot of great things about this relationship. Like us, Survivors for Solutions wants to see continued innovation in the pharmaceutical space. They embrace the free market and believe that the free market is the best solution to improve patient lives. It was founded by our close friend CZ or John Swartaki. CZ founded the group when he saw the damage that the Inflation Reduction Act was gonna bring to the pharmaceutical ecosystem. He's been a patient, and Eric, I think you'll talk about that in a minute, but he's been a patient for several decades himself, and he wants solutions not just for himself, but for his family and friends and for Americans in the future. And he knows how important it is for continued pharmaceutical innovation to happen here in the United States, because if it doesn't, it won't happen anywhere. Joe, you're right. CZ is a longtime friend of both of ours and a seasoned Washington pro. But what most people don't know is that John Swartaki has also suffered from multiple sclerosis for over 30 years. He was diagnosed and has required four different breakthrough drugs over the course of this disease in order to just live. All these drugs have been developed in a robust ecosystem of medical discovery and delivery an ecosystem that the Inflation Reduction Act and President Biden now threaten. That threatens the hope and security and safety, the liberty, and ultimately the lives of millions of Americans suffering from chronic, debilitating, or life-threatening disease. He formed Survivors for Solutions to help save this system so others like himself have the chance at a fulfilling and robust life. You can learn more about CZ and his lifelong struggle with multiple sclerosis from our March 27th DC EKG interview, plus his website, survivorsforsolutions.org, or on Twitter at Hope Matters Most. Joe, we're really fortunate. CZ is our leader here at DC EKG, and we look forward to advocating on his behalf and the behalf of millions of American patients in the years to come on our show. Welcome back to DC EKG with my co-host Joe Grogan. New format for those of you who've been following along. We're out of the studio, a little more relaxed. Here with our guest, Paul Winfrey. And Paul, want to pick up where we left our last segment, talk a little bit further about the questions around or the challenges around continuing to carry such a significant debt load for the federal government and our country overall. That's right. So for a long time, the U.S.'s main debt management strategy has been to roll over debt, right? It's been to essentially, re I mean, for, uh, for folks who are used to refinancing their mortgage debt, basically refinancing our debt at lower interest rates. And while interest rates are low, ro debt rollover is something that you can do with uh, with a fair amount of ease. Uh, uh, when interest rates start to go up, while at the same time, the amount of debt that you have taken on has gone up, that becomes more of a challenge. The other thing that matters in, in, in all of this is that your main, for, your main source of of making interest payments is obviously revenue. So taxes that the government collects, receipts and things like this. And uh, the main driver of government revenue is economic growth. 
So as long as economic growth is higher than the net interest rate that you pay on the debt, you can keep this debt rollover happening. One of the things that we've seen over the last few years is that the economic growth is slowed, right? It's not three and a half percent anymore. When growth is three and a half, when real growth is three and a half percent, everything becomes easier. When it's lower, you have to start making trade-offs. The other thing that's happened is that interest on debt has gone up. And I think that there are a few reasons why that's happening. We can we can talk about that if if you're interested. But the but the dynamic that that creates is one in which at some point the U.S. will run out of fiscal capacity. They'll no longer be able to take on debt. And economists measure that ultimate level in a number of different ways. It's based on, you know, uh, uh, the the size of the economy, industry, um, the capacity to raise tax revenue, um, a functioning institutions like a like a like government. In uh, the U.S., in all of those categories, looks great. Um, rel especially relative to other countries. But the reality is, is that not even the U.S. will be able to take on debt forever. And I wrote a paper earlier this year that was published by Paragon Health Institute uh, that uh, starts to unpack that, that calculation a little bit. And I find that if you use the most conservative estimates of interest rates, economic growth, um, you assume that there will be no wars, no pandemics, and no recessions in the future, which is kind of a crazy assumption. But it's a sure but it's a but it's an extremely conservative assumption for the calculation I'm making. The U.S. will likely run out of the capacity to take on additional debt sometime in the 2050s or 27 to, to 2070s. Now that might seem like a long time a long time off. But the reality is, is that the closer that we get to 2050 or the time period in which we might start to run run out of borrowing capacity, the uh, the the more significant decisions we're going to need to make to to bring spending under control. So, you know, this gets back to the narrative that lots of folks have been, you know, pushing for a long time about how, you know, if we're going to get debt under control, we need to start now. Uh, and that would only really require a bending of the curve, right? We can continue to we can continue to spend more money out into the future. We just can't continue to spend as much as is under is under baseline. So, Paul, when you when you come up, I mean, we don't need to get into like the details of your algorithm and everything. Yeah. But why why not forever? Why what what are the constraints on the U.S. being able to just print and borrow and refinance? ad infinitum. We're the world's reserve currency. Nobody's going to move on to the one, right? It's a, it's a very small amount uh, there as far as a reserve currency and amount in circulation. So just for people who might say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, we can borrow forever. Why is the answer? No, we can't. I think that's a great question. Um, the U.S. is the U.S. does have the world's reserve currency and U.S. debt is the number one safe asset in you know that that that's on that's on the market right now um just ask all the banks that are failing because they took on so much of that safe asset uh that's sort of a that's sort of a side note um but nice elbow uh, shot there Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so safe it's 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 um but um you know like look the uk was in the same position that the us is in before the first world war 
And then when, when they came out of it, two things happened, right? Pound sterling was replaced by the dollar and the U.S. guilt was replaced by U.S. debt, U.S. treasuries as again, the world's leading safe asset. And so it's, it's, uh, you're, you're exactly right. If, 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 if we, you know, when we wake up tomorrow morning, again, the U S I think is in a, is in a really solid position. I'm not saying that, that, uh, that U S the, the U S position, uh, is going to be challenged in the next week. Uh, but the reality is, is that we don't know what the future holds and it's better to be safe than sorry. And the, and the, and those assets aren't riskless. And it seems to me that to protect future generations and to protect the U.S.'s position in the world economy, it makes sense for us to do things to de-risk the U.S. budget. And it really doesn't, I mean, honestly, it doesn't require a whole lot. And I, I say that as an economist, not as somebody, you know, not as a policymaker who's got to make these tough decisions. Um, but when I look at the drivers of the debt Sustain, uh, unsustainability, I find that there are essentially two things that are behind that. Uh, one is rising net interest costs. Okay. Well, that's actually pretty easy to fix, right? The, well, easy in the grand scheme of things. The way that you do that is that you just continue to protect the U.S.'s position so that we're never paying more than 4% four, 4 uh, in, in net interest costs for, uh, for maintaining that debt. Well, what does that mean? I'm sorry, but what does that mean? Protect the U.S. position by ensuring we we can borrow at four percent or below. Uh, it means it means two things. Uh, one, it means protecting U.S. institutions, which I think we we do a, a fair job fair fair job of doing. Right? Nobody is is worried that the U.S. is going to collapse. Right? No one's worried that the U.S. government is uh, you know um, going to become a banana republic. Uh, it's we are a we are a fairly stable and safe we are in a fairly stable and safe position. Uh, honestly, it hasn't always been like that, right? I mean, uh, European debt markets in the 1830s and 1840s had real questions about whether or not the U.S. was going to be uh, a viable country. Uh, I think we have proven that we are a viable country, and as long as we keep that up, that that's a good thing, right? Um, um, uh, but the, the, the other thing here is, is that you need revenue to always be coming in to pay your, uh, pay, pay, pay for your interest payments. Right. And we know that revenue can't increase over the long run faster than economic growth. Right. Well, when you say we know it, I mean, maybe the three of us know it. But there's plenty of people who may be in the United States Congress right now who think who, who that very simple sentence you just put together yeah. is it eludes them. They don't necessarily believe it. They're, they're, the rhetoric is all there's fat cat corporations, there's wealthy people sure. hiding money all over the place. What we need to do is pursue tax equity and we will have all the revenue that we need to fund everything we want to uh, do both as far as increased spending, but servicing the debt on the spending that's already occurred. And Joe, Paul, the, that rhetoric and those policy ideas come at a period of time where revenues to the federal government are at historic highs. Yes. Even after those evil Trump tax cuts, Elon, that, <laughs> that slash, so that were jeopardized, all these massive uh, social programs. 
So the massive social programs that allegedly were jeopardized have continued to grow at healthy rates to ensure that people have their Social Security benefits and their Medicare health coverage. Yet at the same time, the revenues that were forecast to slow or even slump under the Trump tax cuts have actually far exceeded projections and will continue to for years to come. So kind of, Paul, to back to your second point, in a world where, as Joe says, there's plenty of rhetoric and lame brain policy ideas about even more revenues, but the fact is we have significant revenues because of how President Trump and our team fixed the tax code. What do we do now about ensuring that, again, to your point, we don't run into a situation by the 2050s where we've got some big trouble. I mean, that's a great, great comment. I, you know, look, the level of revenue is important for fiscal sustainability. The level of revenue matters less than the growth in revenue. And the reason that that's the case is because so I wrote a paper that was published by the Heritage Foundation in I think 2015 or 2016. It's been a while now, although I updated it during the pandemic. And I found that two things. One, it doesn't matter what tax system you put in place. If you do international comparisons of, you know, countries that have VATs and different tax, tax systems, tax schemes, nobody can grow revenue for uh, faster than economic growth for more than about five or six years. The same is true in the U.S. If you go back and look at the post-World War II period, so for the look at the last 80 years, there's been no period in U.S. history, regardless of the tax structure that we've had in place, where revenue has grown faster than GDP for more than about three to four years. At the same time, we have these federal health care entitlements, Medicare and Medicaid in particular, that have been growing faster than the economy since they were created. And that's that is that that's the basic problem. Right. So we have these programs that for, you know, you you guys are I, I, I dabble in health policy. You guys are the health policy experts. We have these health programs that have grown faster than than the economy, while at the same time we have a revenue collection system that can't grow faster than the economy over 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 a sustainable period of time. So until that changes, the budget's unsustainable. And when you talk to budget experts like the Congre Congressional Budget Office, who thinks about these problems, they kind of wave their hands and say, this problem will take care of itself, right? We don't know their how it will take care of itself. return to the mean. Yes, right. they're but built at, that way. At some yep. point in the future, health spending will no longer grow faster than the economy. Well, how? How will it grow faster than the economy when, it, when we have this, this case study that health programs have been growing faster than the economy since the 1960s. So certainly they're growing faster than the economy, but we all worked for a president who drew the line at cutting Medicare. It's the right policy choice, it's the right political choice. And I think he's gonna persist in driving the party on at least the Republican side, not to go after Medicare. So. Are there other ways to make sure the economy grows large enough that revenues continue to exceed expectations, even with the challenges every three or four years, and that other spending is appropriately handled so that, again, 
we don't crash and burn by the 2050, 2070, 2070 period. Yeah. I, well, like I, like I said earlier, everything is easier to do when you're growing at three and a half percent. And the TCJA, I think, was a major improvement. That's the, the 2017, 2017 tax bill was a major improvement on the system, the tax system that had been in place prior to the TCJA. There's still more work to do, right? There were things that we couldn't get done uh, that were in the House bill that didn't make its way into the package that President Trump signed. Uh, there, so there's a lot that you can do on the on the revenue front to create a even more pro-growth tax policy. Because it's revenue and growth together that ensures we don't have this crisis moment. That's exactly right. Okay. There's also a lot that you can do on the administrative state, just getting regulation under control that would create a pro-growth environment. And we worked hard, right, to bring the regulatory burden down by half. Mm -hmm. And that did have significant economic consequences, impact, I should say, improvements. We talked with Casey Mulligan uh, a while ago about all that. Uh, that's a big deal. It it's a, a massive deal. deal. Yeah, it was a huge deal. I just want to put a fine point. Not only was it a big deal, but we were all mocked for it. Right. When when we when the president said we're going to cut, you know, two for one, four for four for one. And then we were over we overshot it. We were like 16 to one yeah. at one point. And everybody's frame of reference was different going into the office and saying we're not regulating today. We are deregulating today. And the it, it was, you know, it's, I don't know how to describe it, but the the way, you know, the, the American people and American industry surprised everybody on the upside about what they were able to do and how much more economic activity they would create with their regulatory shackles taken off them. That's that's exactly right. Right. I mean, it's it's always easier to change policy when you're growing the pie, when you're creating a system of abundance than it is to, you know, when you're just basically managing decline. Right. Let's hold on that insight right there to be able to come back at our next seg segment and pick that up. This is DC EKG, House Call, a little bit of a new format again. Our partners, Big Wig Media and Evergreen, will be back. <laughs> 